an honor it is to reconnect with a, an incredible musician and a uh, guy we only scratched the surface before. T.S. Webb, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hello, Jake. <laughs> it's an honor, man. You know, I, I have to tell you, I just in, uh, very briefly, um, I went yesterday to a really beautiful club here in town. It's a jazz club and it's called the Century Room. And if you haven't, I don't know, whenever you get up here, you should definitely check it out. Um, and they had this really interesting afternoon session with, uh, a dear friend of mine from the band Oregon. Do you remember that band? Oh, sure. All right. Ralph well, Towner. from, uh, twice and they opened for me once. That is so freaking great. Okay. So Glenn Moore, the bass player lives down in Aravaca and he, uh, did a duet concert and we're dear friends. I mean, I've been down there, I've done couple video interviews with him, you know, just always hanging out. He's just a great guy. And, you know, I guess the the long and the short of it is, T.S., what would you, like, the way music, spiritual music, I don't care what genre it is, but um, music is a healing force for me. And I, oftentimes I have a lot of out-of-body experiences, um, a lot of guttural transmissions. Uh, it's not this pacified, sit-on-your-hands clap even if you don't like the tune it's like an urgency it's like going it's like pushing the musicians out of their comfort zone so that they go over the edge and this soprano sax player yesterday was not had never been exposed to the jfs experience and the long and the short of it is and glenn glenn came up to me after the first set and he was like man he's like i played my ass off he's like because your energy man and he was so happy <laughs> And then, okay, so T.S., I go to the restroom, I come back, and the next thing you know, security is asking me to move to the back of the club. And I was like, I paid for my reserve seat, and I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm buying drinks, like, and basically the soprano sax player, this guy Rob Sheps, would not go back on stage until I was removed from the venue. And it was like, you know, and I wanted to ask you, this is the point. I, it's not about me because Glenn texted me and he was like, I'm so sorry, Rob freaked out yesterday, man. Just call me later. You know, it was embarrassing for him because here it is. He's having a ball and he knows who I am. But like, we're, like I know what, like with Coltrane, uh, Jack DeJanette told me that there was a night where Elvin got arrested in Chicago for the third set, and he, so they needed a drummer. And Jack was in the audience, and he was really young, but um, the owner was like, hey, you know, let why don't you use Jack? And Train didn't say anything. He said they just put him up on the bandstand, and there he went. And Jack said that, like, with Coltrane, every set, it would get higher and higher, and it was almost a sanctified church environment where you had people – you know, it was almost like holy rollers, you know, screaming and peeking at, you know, and like really getting off on the music. Not, this is not about like disrupting anybody or it's just like, and I wonder like, how did you as a professional deal with, with crowds, especially because the music you were playing, definitely there was rock fusion involved, but what would you, how would you handle it if somebody was really getting off on the music and was bringing, uh, you know, sort of a Chicago Bears-style urgency to the bandstand. 
good vibes. <laughs> That's right, man. That's right. See, a lot of the younger cast that I that I. Goes they that that's right. It's the vibe that they they love the good vibe, and then you run into cats who refuse to come out because for whatever reason they're out of their comfort zone, and basically they're into some kind of performance. Yet I could tell just from the reaction because Glenn was playing his ass off last night, and I could tell that Rob was playing his ass off. But anyway, I just I wonder how much of a, of. In, in your experiences with your own band or with Chicago, how much you relied sometimes on the crowd to help raise the collective consciousness as well? Well, you always hope. You always hope that that, that the involvement is is going to be there. You know, to some great degree. That that's not disruptive, of course. You know, I mean. Uh, you, you know, jumping up on stage and that sort of thing is not uh, is not a good thing, of course. No. You know? but you know, I've always uh, I, I I've always uh, wanted to deliver a a non harmful, uplifting communication to the audience. Absolutely. Now, if the audience is uplifted, then I'm doing my job. You, you know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. Right. Right. I mean, you and and but have you come across other cats in your day who I don't know, man. I mean, this dude was touchy. Uh yeah, you know what I mean? Again, you're not, I wouldn't consider you like, you know, like a I just this guy can play. I mean, don't get me wrong. He is a player, but I just was like I was like, dude, are you kidding me? Like I'm not doing anything and if you're a, really a pro, you just work your way through it and burn. Like, what is your? What's the deal here? Like, well, really, if you're if you're really a pro, you're not distracted. That's the point. You're delivering. You're delivering that non-harmful communication and uplifting your audience. If that's really the case, you know. Now he's got some distance to go. Then, if it, you know, if we can't. Uh, can't hang on to it. <laughs> you got some distance to go. No, it's great to talk. I mean, did you, did you, I mean, because obviously, like, you have earned your stripes. You're at a point. I mean, when did you get to that point? Was there ever, like, like, did you, early on, was there ever sort of an issue? It didn't have to be with a disruptive audience, but in terms of focus, uh, focus, like, where you really wanted to just be, in the moment, present, focused on the group conversation and not being distracted. Did you, was that something you had to cultivate or were you always pretty locked in? Well, that's all, that's, uh, to me, that's always been the idea of what are you doing up there? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, <laughs> what the hell? I mean, dude, I, you know, here I am a patron, a journalist. I'm trying to get the energy level up. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like, how did jazz turn into this? I remember Ramsey Lewis telling me, he's like, you know, man, jazz used to be for the blue collar cat. People would come after work. They'd want to pat yeah. their leg. They'd want to dance. And now it's become this like uptight, rigid, oh, look at my facility and chops. And you you better not have any guttural outbursts or screams, God forbid, if you throw me off. It's like, I mean, he was going after me in the audience. You know, he didn't know. He was he was taking shots at me. He was trying to embarrass me. I was like, "What? who is this fucking guy, man? 
Like, you know, it was really, I mean, I, I think it was, it's really, I mean, I take a lot of pride in the fact that I'm probably going to be the only person ever to have been kicked out of the, the century room. But, you know, anyway, I, you know, to me, um, how, like, over time, did you think, how did jazz change from being a music that people, I remember Art Blakey saying, you know, my job is to wash away the dust of everyday life for all the cats that come in here. Yeah. And he certainly yeah. could do that. And, 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 and then we go to this thing where it's like, oh, it's, uh, you know, you guys, uh, you got to buy a ticket and you can't be disruptive and you got to just be very polite. And it, it, I, how did we get there? Uh, in your eyes, did you see that, that tight, not that you went in, you were not all, you, you didn't, li- you weren't a starving genius. I mean, you went into, you played music for people and were able to sing for your supper, but how how would you describe how jazz sort of evolved or devolved over the last 40 or 50 years? Oh, uh, well, you know, it's always been in Chicago. Uh, we had Joe Siegel. Yes, uh, yes. And Joe was the promoter that would bring the, the heavies in. He brought Train in and he brought... Uh, Miles and brought several people into Chicago in different uh, settings. Uh, finally, he was in a con. He would put on concerts at you know various hotels, the Lincoln Hotel, or uh, I can't remember some of the places. But you know, we had a nice room and lots of seating, and uh, you know, it was more of a concert type situation. But uh, you know, it's it, when the artist wants to see or wants to wants to feel the audience coming up they're not going to they're not going to suppress that in any way shape or form you know hmm. uh, like i said uh, you know this cat that you're talking about is probably you know he's got some ways to go to consider uh the relationship between uh himself and what he's there to deliver and the effects it has uh, you know, maybe he's scaring himself. He's so good, you know. Man, you know, you're me. I, 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 you know, and I, 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 being just, I wasn't. I, you know, to me, it was like, I just felt like, man, you know, like, let's all be on the, let's all row in the same direction, man. N- nobody's suffering here. Like you're, like you're playing your ass off. I mean, it just to me, I just, it's like I don't want to go see, like I might go see Al Vimiola. Uh, at uh, he's coming in here, and I'm not. You know, it's going to be a sit down concert, so I don't know if that's a good I- idea for me to be uh, there. But it's just this this classicalization of jazz. It was never like that, and I, I just want to go back to the days of the of the you know. The Austin High game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I just want to have a natural. I want to have a natural ball. I want to have a natural ball. Go out and play, man. And you know what? Feed off all. Don't put your in ear monitors in. Play off all the ambient environmental noise and just burn. And and let's, and let's have a natural ball. Anyway, that's hey, that's exactly what we're doing with a little group called Fool Aloof down here. I got well, that's the group I'm going to come see then, dude, because I'm I'm making a trip down there this summer. Well, we'll be we'll be at some club here. It's Fool Aloof. Fool watch my, uh, Aloof. You know, watch my page. It it spells the same back, forwards and backwards. You uh, 
Yeah, well, and then text me or, you know, just let me know. We, I wanted to, there's two guys I wanted. I wanted. Lyle Ellis will be on base. Who's that? If we, Lyle Ellis, if we've got him in town, you know. He oh, my here. God. Uh, he played with Cecil Taylor for some years. Oh, my. We're going out, dude. We're going out. <laughs> yeah, I got to tell you something. So this outside, is, this baby. is, outside, you know, so uh, tell me about two cats if you ever cross paths with, Larry Novak and or Jim Atlas. Both. Tell me about them because Radke was talking to me about, he said I had a trio gig on Sunday afternoons at the Old East Inn on 65th and Cottage Grove in Chicago. Ronnie Ellison was the piano player. John Allen was the bass player. But uh, obviously the when I think about Chicago jazz scene, I mean, there was so much insane music going on, but but... In that pocket, it's like Ahmad Jamal, and and, and then this, this German. Jo- I mean, don't don't get me wrong. Arch- totally, no, no, no. I I mean that th- there's too much to name, but this one cat who keeps coming up and he passed away and he he was kind of under the radar, but really right there with the Don Randys and the you know heavy heavy words Bill Evans, but you know this guy Novak. I mean, did you play with Larry? Yeah. I've, I never played with uh, with uh, uh, with him, but a couple of the cats I played with him, and of course Jim Atlas used to play with him a lot, and he was that's like the generation just before me, you know. Right, um, right, right. That's what I. That's what I love. Ten the... years older than I am, you know. What were, What uh, was that generation that you you listened and you watched? <laughs> you know. Damn. But I mean, I want to be clear, though. But I want. Can you talk? Like, like I get it. Like uh, that. That that, you know, it was like you were in a bit of awe. But can you talk about like their harmonic, how big their ears were? What was the difference between? Not that you guys weren't great musicians, but those cats from the generation before, um, to me, they were really living. Maybe not Novak and Atlas, but I just those guys were living the jazz life. I mean, they had stories to tell. They some of them were starving to death, and uh, I, I, I mean, was there was the feeling of the music? Were they were they were they able to just sort of turn the American Songbook upside down and inside out? What was so riveting there? About oh that? yes, man. Oh yes, yeah. <clears throat> You're always in pursuit of the magical moment and when it's all together in the, in the universe and it's presented and everybody gets it, Mm -hmm. you know, the magic of that, of that moment and to make many of those moments in an allotted period of time is, is the pursuit. And Novak was always a monster. He had some great parties, too, I guess. I think I was at one. But um, Jim Atlas Jim Atlas was mo- mainly a session cat around town. Really? And, um, uh, boy, he, he was a great player. I mean, you wanted him on the stand, uh, uh, you know, at, at control of the instrument, you know, just... Uh, right, exactly. And, Full and, control, and, and, yeah. And, and, and totally contributing to the moment, you know. Mm. Uh, that's the kind of cats you're talking about. There. And they, they were working guys, you know. They, they were out there working, you know. But, uh, you know, like you say, commercial, 
some people say think that commerciality is is where the guys sell out or something, you know. But the the, the real truth of the matter is, if you got to make a living at it, then you got to play the chart. But these cats can play the chart. Plus, uh, I talk about the plus. What is to, to, for the younger cats out there? Because a lot of cats think that you just read the chart and you're doing your job. What's the chart? What's the plus? Well, the plus is really being there and communicating to your audience and, like I said, uplifting them, you mm -hmm. know, and and having those moments and, and, you know, so a whole concert of an hour and a half or whatever, uh, nobody leaves there down. It's just, wow, yeah. <laughs> you know, they've all felt something and, 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 and been elevated in mood and, and uh, uh, thought processes and everything. And just... To, uh, that's the whole idea of it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's to, to, I wouldn't say raise consciousness, but if it does, it does. You know? Well, no, but it's, but it's, it's always healing, though. I mean, it's uplifting. Yeah. Forget it's, it. It's happening, baby. Did, did, uh, for a while, for just a hot minute, right when the flock was really cooking, um, you know, it seemed to me that the musicians had a lot of creative control and a lot of the producers were A&R guys, so they really knew music. And if they had suggestions, the musicians dug it or whatever. It was just a conversation. Um, and then and then the bean counters were like, well, we're making money, but you know what? We know more than the musicians um, and we're going to start... <laughs> we're going to... And, 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 and that, to me, like... Uh, can you just talk about the freedom that as a group, whether it was your band or the flock, like, or even working with Tio when he came to produce some albums, like how great it was to not to have people that you could bounce ideas off of that were true music enthusiasts and also recognized because it was really a record based industry and radio play that you had to reach a certain bar in order to get a record out. You couldn't just, you know, today you can, anyone can record anything and get it out to the world. But back then it was Aretha Franklin had to reach a certain bar to get a record out, you know? And I just wonder how much of the magic or those magical moments, either in the studio or on the bandstand really occurred because you guys, well, there's twofold because you had creative control and also you were, getting ahead in your life enough that you didn't have to stress so much about how you're going to pay the bills and you could focus on the actual creation of the art itself. Now, right there, that, that's, you just said a great okay. mouthful, Jake. <laughs> uh, I'm yeah, burning uh, right now. I'm on fire right uh, now, man. Uh, I wouldn't say comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, no, definitely but, not. Definitely not comfortable. But, but if things are taken care of and the artist is allowed to be the artist... And in our case, uh, you know, we worked real hard. I mean, our rehearsal schedule when I first joined the band and thereafter, if we weren't working until uh, uh, Friday or Saturday, we rehearsed Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, eight hours a day. Mm -hmm. And we were fed lunch and everything. You know, it was a very good organization. It was under Rick Canoff and uh, Jack Mondras. Um, 
we were taken care of so we could concentrate on what we were there to do to make that unit cohesive and communicative and just exciting, you know? Uh, and that that's what we were allowed to do. So that was a very, very good thing. Now, since that time, you know, I've done a lot of my own things. I've had 18-piece, I've had a 14-piece, and obvious necessity uh, hmm. was the name of the group, is a 14-piece. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I had to keep going, finding money, and, uh, you know, pay rehearsal, uh, I paid rehearsals and, you know, because I had 10 horns, uh, 10 horns in a rhythm section, My you know. Uh, and that, that's hard. That's hard to continue, you know, if, if it isn't actually generating that sort of income, you know. Uh, you're, you're under a lot of constrictions, you know. Um, like paying the bills. What <laughs> what was the, uh, I, I'm curious. Hall bills and so forth. Well, yeah. no, I mean recording. What was the um what were you hearing in your head? I mean, you came from a power fusion group, but when you what was what were you hearing in your head that 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 mandated the uh, that needed 10 horns? <laughs> I, I just, I mean, to me, like, I, you know, like in some ways it's like, because like someone like yourself, um, there are other examples too, where you got some cats that can play, like sometimes those cats, one cat can sound like, I remember Wilton Felder, the great bass player from the Crusaders, he was originally a sax player and played a lot of sax with the Crusaders, but I just remember him talking about some rehearsal on saxophone and there were six dudes, and when he showed up, uh, they got rid of the other guys, and it was just, he could do it all himself, you know. So it was like you. Uh, I'm just with ten. Explain the the process that what was what you were hearing in your head and what you were being influenced by that that why you needed such a huge section. Well, in that period when I was writing uh, that that material for the for the fourteen piece, the obvious necessity. Um, and I had a lot of, I mean, I love horns, you know, I mean, sure. in the flock, uh, there were three of us. And sometimes if, if Freddie still had a little bit of chops, he'd grab a trumpet and add a fourth, a fourth horn, you know. Um, but I, I really wanted to showcase saxophones and trumpets and trombones, you know, uh, it's, you know, it's a guitar world out there. You're darn right. You know, so I, I, I like to show show people a little, a little something different uh, than you know just a, a four piece guitar band. Basically, um, I mean, not that I don't love guitars and guitar players, uh, but I wanted to showcase horn players. I knew a lot of horn players in Chicago, and I met a number of cats. That I got to put this guy on the stand. You know, I just he's got something to say. Uh, here's and I would write the format for that basically. Uh, you know, a tune that that uh, is is moving in a specific direction and uh, uh, it's got a lot of uh, a lot of love in it and it's moving and it's got time and everything and you can put this cat and just step up front and say it, baby. 
you know, and I always love doing that. As a leader, I love doing that. So I, the bigger the band, the better, because I got more guys to showcase then, you know. And gals. I had a, a wonderful clarinetist and uh, flautist uh, in obvious necessity. It's uh, the greatest and, name for a band I've ever heard in my life, I think. Oh, it was an obvious necessity. Yeah, yeah. Absolute music, healing music. No, I mean, <laughs> so like were yeah. you, you were writing uh, like, chart how can you talk about some like maybe one particular tune that you jammed up or arranged that i mean and, and is there anything out there available is there anything out is there a record or any kind of live performance out there of that of that group oh yeah uh uh you're gonna have to give me an address later on I'll, I'll you got it a couple of cds sure uh, from obvious necessity t.s henry webb's obvious necessity uh there's one tune on there. It's on uh, the second on the second uh, CD because I, I I recorded two CDs with that. And are you still with me, Jack? I'm here, baby. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just I don't know about these phones. They it's okay. Quiet. Yeah, no, we're good. But um, I, I recorded two albums, two two CDs, and uh, with that unit, with the fourteen piece. And um, I think you can hear what's going on there. I just love the arrange. I love to arrange, you know. Uh, one of the arrangements is uh, uh, Jet Stream. It's a tune I wrote way back in 71, but wow. I did a full score on it for 14 pieces. And, you know. Wow. Uh, wow. And it, it, it gives people opportunities to, to play, you know, on, on a groove. You know, hey, grab this groove and... Uh, Let's have a thrill, baby. <laughs> I freaking love. No, but I mean, it wasn't, especially in the live setting. I mean, not, you know how you how would you delineate? I mean, certain songs lent themselves. Some, you know, maybe there'd be a bone or, or a sax solo, but not everybody would be able to blow on every tune. No, now each tune, you know, you'd like to pick a different cat and you know showcase him. You know, you like you like point to the person you would want a solo. Oh yeah, or it's written in the in the chart. Sure, itself, sure. You know, it's sure. your ad lib random, and uh, everybody else gets in a, uh, uh, a contributive mode. Uh, you know, complimenting, comping. You know. I mean, you know, the, the the big band era had long since dissipated, and the idea of ballrooms and that dancing. I mean, what were the vet? Were you playing weddings or like? No, they're still in my head, man. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, actually, I did. I did a number of concerts. I actually did my fiftieth birthday party at a place in uh, in Chicago. It was uh, Green Dolphin Street, and um, so cool. Uh, the I some of it got recorded. Uh, Dave Freeman has it. Um, I if he still has it, I'm not sure. Uh, Are you talking about the vibes player? No, Dave was Dave was an impresario. Uh, wow. DJ, he wow. was a DJ at uh, several jazz stations wow. in Chicago. Wow, and you know, college jazz and uh, uh, stations and uh. Also, uh, he was in uh, one of the PBS stations, too, I think. Uh, he had a show on there for a number of years. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I showcased the band, you know. Uh, but, 
when you when you get into a situation like that, you know, it's a sell tickets thing and all that. I just ran into something interesting uh, the other night. I sit in and play with uh, Scott Bakeland's Out of the Blue down here, and that's mm. basically he's covering a lot of uh, a lot of really old stuff. And um, uh, his son is a saxophone player, and I I play flute with these guys, mm. and uh, we we play at a club in in uh, Bisbee on Saturday afternoon, uh, one to five. So when I'm on the loose, if I'm not working somewhere else, I, I go and sit in with those guys. Mm. And, um, there was a band coming in and the, the, it looks like the new situation here is where the band sells all the tickets. It, it, it reminds me a lot of the punk scene um back in the 80s and 90s where the band sells out the place and then they got a gig at the place so <laughs> you know uh right right as opposed to the it's kind of interesting because uh, right you know. <laughs> no no I mean, explain that though you're talking about having to wear eight hats whereas before you had uh a an apparatus around you that did the promotion. I mean, you didn't have to worry about getting butts in the seats when you were with the flock. Exactly. Exactly. You could focus, and then that's the thing uh, that you take when you, that was, that was wonderful. <laughs> no, but I'm saying like, that's the whole point that like, you know, nowadays it's like, it's on the band to do everything. And that inevitably is going to hurt the ability to actually, be fully focused on the creation of the art itself. That, to me, is the biggest issue in, yes. in music today. Yes. I yes. don't know how you get around that. I mean, to not have to wear, to wear eight hats and just have one or maybe two hats, you know, like a, a, a section writer or a section player uh, or... Um, you know, a section leader in the band, depending how big the unit is, you know. Uh, it, 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 just to be in that situation is just, that's that's the ideal scene. I want to read you this story. I, uh, he's been on my mind lately, and uh, I got to give him a call. <clears throat> um, it's Hawk Walensky, and... Um, did you cross paths with him in Chicago? I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, it, say it again. A uh, Hawk Wolinsky. Oh, Hawk. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so I want to I want to read you, I want to read you this yeah. story. He told me. He said, so he was in a band called Banger Flying Circus. He said, Oh yeah, I wonder. I just was talking about them the other day. Dude, yeah, I've been listening yeah. nonstop to their album. It's unreal how good that music is. He said. As far as I know, Al DiCarlo got that scatting. He was a scat. He was scatting a lot from a local. I want you. This is the guy I want you to talk about. He said from a local guitar player around Chicago named Carmen Mena. This guy sang like Johnny Mathis and played guitar like Wes Montgomery. He was an absolute monster and a drop dead good looking Italian guy. He would do this solo act and make so much money because he had no overhead at all. So Al DiCarlo took lessons from Carmen. Carmen Mena. Do you know it? Does that ring a bell? Yes, it does. Uh, wow. I'm glad we're going back here, but I... I, I it, that's, it, it, yeah, that's like the 50s, man. That's... Uh, damn, dude. Some incredible stuff at the Bitter End on Belmont, Belmont and Central. Oh, my God. The Bitter <laughs> End on Belmont and... So, I mean, that dude was... I mean, 
he was a solo. Were there a lot of solo acts back in the fifties of guys who could just overpower a room and, like you said, have people locked in for an hour and a half, just freaking out? <laughs> mainly, mainly no. Uh, right. You had a lot of piano bar type things, but you did have some cats that could pull it off, and they just did a beautiful job. And uh, he was one of them, and. And there were several other guys, I can't think of their names right now, but down along Rush Street and that, they were in the piano bar situation, but they really turned it into a performance, uh, a, a wonderful performance of whoever would walk in, you know. Uh, and he was, they, they, they would make it to the top on the piano bar scene, you know, on the solo scene, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but Al, Al DiCarlo was a very fine guitar Can you talk about I mean, Al, man? Because I've been listening to so much Al DiCarlo lately, and his scat singing is... And the point is, this is what Hawk said. About, this is what I... I, I should have finished the story. <coughs> um, Al would do... The, uh, so so uh, Banger Flying Circus started playing around Chicago, and George Benson came through with Jack McDuff. I'm fairly, he said, I'm fairly certain that George came and saw us and picked up that scat singing from Al. We'd be doing four sets a night, and during our breaks, we'd go check other groups that were not playing. Not everybody. It's very, it's very possible. It used to be the old Bulls down in the basement there on Wisconsin Street and uh, Lincoln and Wisconsin. Wow. Uh, wow. It's very possible. Uh, I have a friend that lives next door to George. Uh, uh, but in Scottsdale or something? Where was yeah. He? Yeah, that, that, yeah. Dude, I love Benson. Dude, that dude. It doesn't matter. He's the a guitar player living next door to George Benson. <laughs> now, I want you to tell me, I, I want you to, this is so intoxicating for me because, again, even though it's so beautiful that I get to see Glenn Moore from Oregon and T.S. Webb now, um, you know, this story is is like, it's almost too hard to believe, but I want you to talk about your own experience on a, on a given night when I read this. Hawk said, and this is right during the emergence of the flock, but he said, in the back in the late 60s, Chicago was the greatest music scene in the history of the world. There were 50 clubs within about two miles of each other, literally, yeah. on a given... <laughs> yeah. But this, this is crazy, man. This And to know that T.S. Webb was cooking the groove, I mean, to come out and still be cooking the groove, it's... On, he said, literally on a given night, the lineup of who would be playing, Frank Sinatra at the Happy Medium, McCoy Tyner, Sam and Dave around the corner, you'd have George Benson playing with McDuff, you'd have Rod Stewart and Small Faces and Baby Huey and the Babysitters. Yeah, you yeah. go down another block, you'd have Sam Lay playing with Bloomfield and next door Corky Siegel. All uh -huh. this on the <laughs> same night within walking distance. During that period, six days a week, I did not get home until the sun rose. Dude, and that's why <laughs> my, my point is that it's like, I'm in Tucson, and I know Tucson has never been, never not comparing it to Chicago, but that, 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 that scene is... It, it's 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 so be it's such it's gone, man. There's one gig at one place. There's no gigs anymore. There's just I mean yeah. th th that no, that we're all spread out, you know. Yeah, how did that happen? How did was that was that flight like leaving? Everybody lived in the city, like, and then every like how did it get so spread out? Because 
There it is. You could drink as much as you wanted and go to and walk to every club. I mean, it's just like insane, right. and that man. Was the area. Uh, I can give you my viewpoint. Go on ahead, that man. Is, yeah, is, man. Is, is simply that it it was good business environment, good small business environment. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, you know, every one of those clubs, cats were making money. You know, uh, they were selling good product and. Uh, advertising and bringing people in and it became I mean sections of Chicago like the Rush Street District, Old Town uh, now the Lincoln Avenue, the New Town Districts, each one of those had their own you know, their own sets of bars uh, up and down Lincoln Avenue. You could, it's just what, what Hawk was saying or what you said about uh, Yeah, that was Hawk, yeah. Going from club to club and seeing something entirely different and incredibly fine, you know, and, and the money was good, you know, uh, actually the value of the dollar was quite a bit higher than it you're is. You're darn now. right, man. <laughs> no, you're darn, you know, that's the thing. I mean, you're looking at hard Chicago blues, funk, soul. On one side of the street and right across the street, oh, you had, uh, insane. <laughs> You had, you had uh, jazz going on. Yeah, you had, you had organ jazz or like, you know, yeah, Rod had, Stewart exactly. or something. I mean, it just, and then, you know, Sam and Dave or, you know, and I guess that. Odell Brown and the organizer. You know, dude, Odell Brown, dude. Yeah, that that yeah. man, dude, he's in my soul. I love Odell Brown, man. Odell is a monster, baby. Oh, my God. What about this cat? This, uh,. He's. I wanted you to know this ever happened to you, and I'm talking when you were basically just a babe in the woods. But Hawk said one night when I was 16, I snuck out of my mom's house and went down to Old Town to see an organ trio. There was a guy down there named Prince James playing organ jazz in which looked like a storefront. He's got his back to me with a cigarette in one hand. He's playing like Larry Young with a sax player and a drummer. I'm standing outside freezing my ass off, and he turns around and sees me and motions for me to come in. He says, how old are you? I said, 16. He says, do you like organ? I said, yeah. He said, sit right over here. He just let me sit there and watch him. Did anyone, uh, did anyone? Excellent. <laughs> it is so cool. And, and I just wonder, was there an older cat? And it doesn't have to be the same kind of thing, but where they just were like, hey, man, you into music? Why don't you come on in here? And even though you didn't know... Or you didn't, you know, maybe you had you had potential, but you didn't really know where you were going. But somebody opened their heart to you, and and it was a profound memory. Oh yes, and I'm always I'm forever thankful for that. You know, many times I came in, I'm standing, I'd be, you know, standing outside, and I'd get a signal, hey, you know, guys, take a break, and they say, what do you what do you play? <laughs> you know, and I'd say, I play tenor. You, know, you dig what we're doing? I said, shit, yeah. I would come in and. Uh, well, come on in on the next set. Just come in this door over here. <laughs> you know, uh, I was very fortunate, uh, like Hawk, you know. Uh, it happened to me a couple of times, you know. Uh, Tell me one. Tell me specifically, because, I mean, this was the other thing was like, again, it's like this idea of one human race. To me, it's like a lot of these guys, these guys, people, musicians of color, they like you talked about. Well, you talked to me about the epic freaking story about Buddy Guy and <laughs> Junior Wells, yeah. but 
You know, like those, it just, they were so open. There was nothing elitist about it. They were just, it was, was, and that's such, that, that is across the board. Everybody from your generation had those experiences and not one of them ever said they, there was a bad, it was always just an up, like it was about making, making sure that people got uplifted. I'm not saying it was always a great vibe, but it was the, it didn't matter if you could play. It didn't matter who you were, what color your skin was. Come on up and play. Yeah, or, or to just come in. You can you can sit over here on the side of the stage. This is cool. Just watch. Yeah, right. Jack. Exactly. Go just yeah, If you dig it, then just come watch. I mean, outside of Buddy Guy, can you talk about another time that happened for you? Oh, uh, actually, yes. <laughs> uh, there, there was a there was a uh, club, and. Um, uh, right in, uh, I think it was uh, uh, North Avenue and Austin, and there was there, there was some cats playing there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was on the old park side, actually, and uh, it closed pretty rapidly after that. But uh, um, there was some cats playing. I forget who they were. I, I just I I stopped outside the club. I was walking by going to the gas station or something, walking over to the gas station. Um, and uh, I stopped and I li- started listening and the cat was at the window and he said, hey, come on in here, you know, <laughs> come on in, you know, uh, you, you dig it, let's go. <laughs> and he was just sitting there playing, man. I mean, he was a piano player and a, a tenor player and a bass man. And uh, it was just a little trio. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the names. but They were clearly you know. older than you, though. Oh, yeah, they were, they, well, to me, they probably looked like they were in their 60s or something. Sure, sure. in their 40s. Sure. You know? How old were you? How old were you at the time? Uh, I was young, man. You that's know, so beautiful, man. Like, that to so, me is, you know? that is just like, that is, because we're so disparate and spread out, I don't know, that doesn't happen enough anymore. That has a lot to do with it. You know, there's very, you know, you there's not a lot you're not on foot a lot this was my neighborhood that's right you know? that's right <clears throat> that was my neighborhood i mean it was only four blocks from my house so you know uh i'd be walking uh, I'd walk over there they got they got the uh, certain candy over there so you're walking over there hey, hey get that favorite candy that's right that regional candy yeah <laughs> i dig know? man i dig and what <laughs> just the idea of the inclusivity of being invited in to watch these guys just swinging so hard um, gave you. I mean, did you stay in touch with them? Was it the only time you ever saw? I mean, that was the other thing. It wasn't. No, that was the only time wow. I ever. Well, I saw them later on. I, I I can't remember what the name of the group was, so but they were playing out of their Mannheim Road. Uh, you know, I I, I got to say that you know the mob had an awful lot to do with. You know, I'm real. I thank you for bringing thank you. And that, well, I want you to talk about this because, I mean, John Hendricks basically said, without the Sicilians, there'd be no jazz in America. You know, (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, my dad worked for Capone, and uh, right, right, right. I I worked for. I I went to uh, grammar school, and Tony Accardo's. he, Tony Accardo built it, you know, and he was he was. So I want to be clear about this, though. The the one reason the the description of what Hawk was talking about within that two block radius, <clears throat> and everybody was getting paid money. I mean, the, the the mob 
these were mob run clubs. They wanted people to have a good time, dance, drink, and so the so they were funding a lot of the you know they they were putting money in the musicians' pockets. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, they were in business. They right. were businessmen. All right, and you know when you think of it, oh boy, it's it was a mob controlled. Well, actually. The unions, you know, I, I was a member of 10208 about the same time Hawk was. Right. Uh, you know, I was in it for 35 years, and uh, uh, the union was very, very strong. But the union was an extremely welcoming uh, uh, component in the clubs and so forth because, you know, they the clubs were taken care of, you know, the, the, the booze distributors and everything were, you know, uh, on the up and up, uh, you know, there, there wasn't any, you know, mob violence and all that. Yeah, stuff, no, it's, it's so interesting. Cause I mean, it's, it, but they, they wanted to present good product. If you had good product and, uh, you know, a welcoming place and, uh, you know, it's really people and you know you ever notice where you go into a club and you feel the vibes and 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 there's you you just feel that there's a love of your fellow human beings and you're going to have a good time you know most of those clubs had that feel to them there was no you know there may have been a doorman but he yeah i gotta check your ids you know the city of chicago is gonna going to give us a hard time if we let you in and you're too young or something in the front door. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it was well controlled. That's that's the main thing about the, the outfit, you know. Uh, I want to be clear, though. That it's fair to say, and it's fine that it was like this because it was so groovy, but basically it was under control by, quote-unquote, the mob and that politicians were all paid off by the mob well politicians like to have a good time too i they 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 darn do yeah they do these clubs and they had a they had a a free free drinks and you know lots of babes around uh you know the politicians were happy (laughs) absolutely no totally but i mean like in terms of the mob's reputation of taking people out or you know sometimes the local politicians would look the other way just because they were on the they were on the take. I suppose I I never witnessed that myself. And, of course, no. You know, but I mean, like it wasn't. You, it, yeah, you cannot uh, tell anybody that. <laughs> you know? That's true. I, I you know I this is so. I want to wrap up set two with this, and I want you to talk about it from your own personal experience. I got to send you some of these interviews because you will just love hearing them talk, but. Another dear friend of mine, I got to go see him. He's out in Mill Valley now. Is Harold Jones? <clears throat> you know Harold? Uh, I know the name. So he he uh, he started out in. Well, I think I even told you this. Uh, he was hanging with guys like Andy Simpkins and John Pierce and Joe Hunt, and you know they were older than him. But then I came on the radio one day that. Bird had died, and they all started crying. <laughs> he didn't know who Bird was, but they were these guys were wearing shades at night. That's how hip they were. But <laughs> but he this is what he talked about, and I want you to talk about it from your own experience. <clears throat> it's a little bit different uh, with a, it's a little bit different with a wind instrument, but not 
completely different. He's a drummer. He said, uh, Dinah Washington owned a club on the south side of Chicago. I was in the house band there. I played McKee's Show Lounge and the Pershing. Playing in different rooms and different kinds of in different kinds of rooms, you learn how to play with volume according to what you were hearing. I always had to do mine physically and acoustically. When I played at Dinah's Club, Sleepy Anderson was playing organ and Leo Bevins on guitar. They just turned them up. I can't remember it never swinging. It was always swinging. Now, okay, so what he was saying, they turned up Sleepy and Leo. They had amplified. They were amplified. Harold was not. So he, in order to generate sonically, he had to do it physically and acoustically. And I wanted you to talk about a situation if, if you know, in your career as a horn player, especially not with multi-horns, I guess it could be with multi-horns, but where you the there was a huge amount of amplification going on and you had to generate sonically through phys, through phys, physicality and and acoustic and acoustically based on the room oh yeah well you know <clears throat> another step yeah uh, in in the electronics when electronics you know with the flock we we were always having to having to get as close to the mic as possible, you know, with three horns right. and so forth, you know. Right. Uh, and luckily, the PAs were the were the thing that that was being developed during our time. I mean, you remember some of those gigantic PAs at, uh, at some of the festivals? It was just like way overkill, but 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 they were loud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you know. Uh, in the club situation, uh, as a tenor player, I was, uh, I was, you know, I was always. Uh, you had a piano, you had a guitar player, and and they, we had to do some of the modern guitar stuff. Uh, oh, like the King Curtis stuff or the uh, sure. uh, Johnny and the Hurricanes, that sort of thing, and just to be heard, you know, because the guitar had an amplifier. And uh, the bass player had an amplifier, and they weren't that loud compared to to, to today or or even 1969. But back in the early early 60s, uh, myself and Frank, uh, the trumpet players, uh, when we played with different bands, uh, uh, my band, the, the Hen Smith Henry Group. Uh, we didn't. We weren't even mic'd, you know. So we had a. We had a kind of get. We were very fortunate. We had Danny Santercola on guitar, and he was. Uh, he had great sensitive ears, so he wouldn't play very loud. Right, I love it, <laughs> and, dude. And, Just you know, you'd get excited with the drummer. The drummer would get. You know, we had uh, one of the, the. We had the world's smallest drummer at one point, and uh, who was that? Sammy G and Greco. Oh my God! This is so classic. Uh, he died at seventeen. Uh, oh. He had a hole in his heart, but he was wonderful. He was a fantastic drummer. Uh, but at, at the same time, everybody had to be able to hear each other. Uh, you know, everybody else and each other. Well, that's the that's the whole. You had to balance yourself against. That's the thing. You were playing to one mic, and you had three horns. And oh, yeah. I mean, that to me is like, 
that created so much dynamics. That was what made the music burn so hard. And it, I just think that that is such a gift. Um, you know, you know, like I remember Spin- David Spinoza talking about, you know, you listen to a big band jazz record today and everybody's mic'd, but it sounds sterile. It doesn't sound so good. Back then, you know, you go to the Woody Herman bands or, uh, you know, any of these big bands. I mean, the, the, the whole, the entire sax sessions, they were relying on one mic maybe. They had to balance themselves without overpowering yes. it. Yes, yes, that's what we did. We would back up on some of the parts and then we'd come in on the mic, you know, for, for uh, you know, uh, to, to, to increase the, the, the power of the horns, you know, the, the section and what we, were, what we were contributing to it, you know. And then we'd back off. That was our dynamics, right. you know. Right. <clears throat> uh, because you didn't depend on a sound man to be flipping a slider, you know, and watching you. Because he had seven people on stage, and you know that's a lot of instruments. You know, I mean, it's just it's it's so. Um, it, it's, it's always it, the main thing is the vocals. You know, if you can't hear the singer, you're too loud. <laughs> that's right, man. And then the other thing is like, I mean, the advent of the in-ear monitors. You know, and and to me, like Bernard Purdy said it best. I mean. If you, as a drummer, if you're wearing in-ear monitors because you you don't think because you can't hear yourself, then automatically you're already behind the beat. Right, unless you have a sound man that's giving you exactly what you want. That's you true. Know? That now that's a yeah. different story. I, I agree with that. That if you can get some of that, I just feel like part of the other issue that it was so intoxicating about you guys is that you were dealing with less in some cases. Because, you know, like, yeah, sound systems were very wacky at that time. I mean, it was bizarre. <laughs> and, like, sometimes you'd play it out of really crappy PA systems and stuff. But, you know. Sure. It was just, it, yeah, I know you know that. I know. <laughs> sure, PAs. <laughs> did, yeah. You know, yeah, I, I just, was, you know, but it was like, uh, did, did, can you just talk about um, that maybe part of it also and you brought it up it was just that you know when you well you were coming up i mean coleman hawkins cannonball you know the saxophone was the popular lead instrument and the guitar was essentially a rhythm component instrument and then hendrix all these cats came along cream you know, and Jake, and the point is that the guitar. Let me give you an example. Hit me, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> when we were, you know, the flock, we played a lot of. Uh, we knew Jimmy. We yeah. had met Jimmy in Chicago's uh, in about sixty sixty eight, I think it was. And um, when we hit the road, and we did the 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 uh, after the album, we did the the. Uh, festival, the festival tours, you know, and these were big festivals, seventy five thousand, you know, but like Isle of uh, White or something. Like, well, Jimmy yeah. would, we were on the same when we were on the same day on the same stage, and he knew we were there. He'd say, "Bring out the horn." <laughs> and we'd go out and play with. We'd go out and blow. We had one microphone. We'd run up on the no on the one microphone, way, and he'd be doing Purple Haze or something at volume eleven. 
And, uh, you know, there's a wall of amplifiers behind you and your pants are fluttering, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And here we are, three horn players. We run out there and we couldn't even hear ourselves at all, man, you know. And luckily, you know, we somewhat knew this stuff and had, you know, right away we tuned, you know. We say, oh, yeah, he tunes it down to E flat. So (laughs) we play it a half step low, you know. That is so great. Yeah, he did that more yeah. than he did that more than once. Bring on the horns. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, that is epic. Times oh the United States. <laughs> okay, so this other thing I need to ask you about: Did you know? Did you see Sun Ra before he had the orchestra? Yes, he was playing. Joe Siegel brought him into Chicago. Wow, at the. Oh, I can't remember the name of that hotel. It was a little hotel uh, right on Clark Street. But um, <clears throat> he, had a, he had a nice room, and it was a concert situation. And uh, Sun Ma and uh, his earlier versions of the orchestra, I guess, well, that was really early. That was like 19... I know. Well, Harold said... Back, this is Harold said... Yeah, he said that Harold said... I was playing with drums with Sun Ra in Chicago, playing sorority and fraternity dances. We weren't playing bebop, and it wasn't rock and roll at that time. It was standard songs that Lena Horne and Dinah Washington and Billie Holiday were singing. It was on the south side of Chicago. We were wearing blue suits, white shirts, and a long tie. That is so (laughs) insane, dude. You know, he was a a two hundred eight member then. Who Sun Ra was? Uh, no, Harold. Uh, uh, Harold, yeah, I mean... Yeah, if he was playing around Chicago, man, he was a 208 number. Oh, my God. I mean, dude, yeah. to, to know, the, to, to see Sun Ra before the orchestra, would it just be insane? Oh, yeah, that's... Uh, well, he was, uh, was a great player, and, uh, you know, entertaining as well. You know, uh, very Beyond conscious genius, of, of the audience and... and, and what was going on? Who's getting excited and deliver some more? He no, he he had, he had yeah. a great time every time you saw the cat. And then when he came out with the orchestra and he did all the the space stuff and everything, you know, that was wild, man. As soon as we got to New York, where's Sun Ra playing? <laughs> and Freddie and uh, Ronnie and I went over there. And I think it was a plug, uh, uh, not the plug nickel, the half note uh, or something, the, the half note. Uh, Maybe, yeah. yeah. I, I can't remember the name, but sure. we were taken over there, you know, by the by the road manager, and uh, we sat down, and there he was, man. <laughs> and he came out and said, haven't I seen you before? Yeah. Oh, my God, that <laughs> is... Was, oh, yeah. He <laughs> was know? an entrepreneur and a stone genius. Oh, yeah. yeah. T.S., one, one final question in set two, brother, is I've been listening to this album recently. I just found it, and... Uh, it's kind of warm. It's melting my heart a little bit because these guys were. I haven't. I'm, I don't live at the at the altar of these guys, but it's so beautiful to hear them. And I just wonder if you ever had a chance to cross paths or see Zoot Sims and Al Cohen. At Zoot, yes, I saw Zoot again at a at a at a uh, at a Seagull concert in Chicago. Very early on, wow. Zoot Sims, uh, I think Grady Tate was playing drums. Oh my, that is, that's <laughs> uh, early. Tate, another story, we were on Rush, the, the, 
I, I was 14. You remember when I joined the union? And <laughs> I had my group, the Diplomats, and we were hired to play behind uh, at the Maryland Hotel. I mentioned this before. But the, in order to do that gig, we were all underage. So uh, we had to have a chaperone. And the chaperone, the union, a cat standing in the union said, hey, I'll chaperone these guys. I'll play drums for them if they want. You know? <laughs> it was Grady Tate. Oh, my God. What year was that? Oh, yeah. What year was that? Oh, that was way back. Yeah. Know, if I was 14, I was... Uh, what was that, 61? Yeah. 61, maybe? 62? Yeah, about 61, 61. Yeah, because that was before... That was... Flat parties for Jack Howard. Because, <laughs> I mean, because that was really before Grady... I mean, he yeah. he was not the, the the studio drummer in New York at that point, you know. That's not in New York, no, but in Chicago, he was getting known. Wait a minute, he he, wait, are you telling me he was Chicago he was he originally already. from Chicago? I'm I'm pretty sure he is. Wow, uh, is, he dude. was really a nice guy, man. And he sat down at the drums and we, you know, give him an idea of the tunes and what the heck of it was I, I i don't know if i told you that before but it, it, it at the maryland hotel was having topless dancers right and that's what we were playing behind <laughs> like you know uh well that but that, that's the other thing man is that they you had to hit their moves the drummer had hit their moves everybody played yeah. everybody played for 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 dancers uh, strippers everybody was doing that everybody you know? Funny story. Yeah. Uh, connected to that. Yeah. Uh, uh, Billy Billy Corbin was uh, my guitar player, senior. Wow. In that group, and uh, you know who Billy Corbin is? I don't know that name. Smashing Pumpkins. Wow! Wow! Well, yeah, that, you know, like that's how unhip I am. I mean, it's so. I mean, I know that name, but I, I, I mean, that, that's about it. It was, it was the eighties. Uh, yeah, and I was born. I mean, for the for, yeah, became a really big group, and that was the son of my guitar player. Wow! Okay, I dig. I dig. With one of the topless dress, the topless gals, and uh, his son was Billy Corgan. <laughs> Dude, and that, that was is the same so... gig that that uh, Grady Tate was on because we were so young. Oh, dude, you you were playing for for uh, for dancers with Grady Tate, right? Um, right. That is the greatest. I mean, for for, you know, for the record, I was born in 1978, so this is so epically insane, and to know that you guys have continued on and just. Live this tree of music, man. It is, you know, and it's 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 interesting. You know, I, I mean, I even going back to the story of what happened yesterday. Um, I still feel like, uh, yeah, it's interesting because I even walked out of that place, and even though I was a little bit, um, I don't know what the right word, I was pretty fired up, but also a little bit rattled to a degree. It wasn't fun to be knock. I mean, Glenn's a dear friend. And he had just told me he was having a great time. You know, it, part of me was like, I felt a little bit bad for the soprano player. Because, you know, I... Well, I, he hasn't got the idea yet. That's <laughs> all. Yeah, whatever it is. Were I mean, he's... For, was this a, a Peach Swan concert? It was not a Swan deal. No, and it was, uh, it was this cat uh, who Glenn has played with quite a bit. This guy named Rob Sheps, who, I mean... 
Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to say the guy can fucking play. Uh, you know, and it was just like he was he didn't know how to handle a strong character in the audience. Not that I'm like barking or telling jokes, but it just threw him off. And normally I like to push the musicians out of their comfort zone because then they get out of their thinking mind. And when they get out of their That's thinking mind, right, and when they you get out of their thinking mind, and, me, we'll have a good time. Oh man, dude, with Stevie <laughs> Graham's man, when I show up, I sit, I get up right in his face, plug in and man, we are off to the cosmos, dude. So, oh, beautiful. You know, beautiful. man, so that what I'm saying is, like, <laughs> I also said, I said, you know, everyone's still growing, man, and I'm just going to stay humble and stay on my path. So, T.S., I can't wait to meet you in person, man. We'll make it happen real soon. I hope so. We will, man. Definitely this summer. a lot of fun, baby. Hey, baby. Much love to you, T.S. Be safe, be healthy, and we'll be in touch, and I'll be down in Bisbee this summer. All right. All right, boss. Be cool, man. Bless you, brother. Bye-bye. Bless you, Webb. Peace.